Okay, we're going to uh, begin tonight looking at the church at Pergamos. These churches and the messages are so full. It's just, again, I haven't studied them the way I'm studying them this time ever. Recognizing, as we have talked before, that there was a reason why God, through the angel in this revelation of Jesus, told John to make sure that he sent a copy of every letter to every church. Because it wasn't just a message for a church. Certainly, there was one specific. But there was relevance in every letter for every church. The teaching is correct. That each one kind of represents a time frame. A kind of a progression of of the church. And so we just kind of associate ourselves with the one that's in the time period that we live. We're missing great truth. We're missing great relevance in this revelation of Jesus Christ. The church at Pergamos, uh, as we studied three weeks ago, is known uh, for being the worldly church. Pergamos was a very, very prosperous city. It was full of of culture. It had, at that time, had the largest, I think, the, the largest library in the world with over 200,000 volumes, which may not sound like a lot now, but then it was a huge library. And, and it was known for religion, all kinds, and all kinds of gods. So this is the environment. It's not a poor place. It's known for its wealth. It's known for the culture. It's known for the knowledge that was held there. That's the environment to which this letter is written. Uh, let's begin with verse 12, Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and in the stone, a new name written, which no man knows saving he that receives it. The time period being described here is the talking about the condition of the church from the fourth to the seventh century. But again, what's happening in this church, I promise you, you could pick it up, set it down in church today, and it would look exactly the same. It may represent a particular time period, but the things that were going on, as we're going to find in a few minutes, are as familiar as what happens in church today. I will tell you also that as I studied this, shared with you before, I'm taking this from uh, come Lord Jesus by Watchman Nee, because again, he wrote it in prison. He didn't have access to a lot of commentary, so he doesn't add a lot. It's, it's, it's a perspective that I found very unique. But even in, in this passage, I would read the commentaries and I would read what Watchman Nee said, and I just couldn't agree. It's like it would not settle in me. 
So much of what you're getting tonight is not from anywhere but here. I just couldn't do it. Up to this one, it's been, I could read it. It's like, yeah, that's the truth. It didn't fit here. And I'll share with you as I go what some of that was. As I said at the beginning, the church in Pergamos is the church that is consumed with the ways and the things of the world. So again, we must also recognize that the church today, is the same thing. The only difference, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this wrong, but I hope it doesn't sound awful, but the only difference between us and the world right now sitting in church today, the only difference between us and the world out there is the Holy Spirit. Yes, I don't want to in that phrase diminish the reality that the why we're sitting here is because of Jesus. I don't want to diminish him in that story, but, but what creates the uniqueness between us and the world, because you can go out into the world and find a, a places a very benevolent world a very kind world, doing a lot of great work, giving millions and millions of dollars to try to improve people's lives. I can line them up and show you those folks. And some of them, as far as just doing good that you could actually say was beneficial, that are doing far better and far more than the church is. What creates the difference between us and the world is the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we don't have the Holy Spirit, how are we going to function like the world? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a given. You think I'm overstating this. What happens in the removal of the Holy Spirit from the story? And I'm not talking about teaching the Holy Spirit. I had a conversation with someone this past week and they had come across a book that teaches body, soul, and spirit. And this other guy that kind of knew this was going on said, come over here and talk to Randy for just a minute. Tell him about this book you're reading about body, soul, and spirit. And I He's telling me a few things and everything he was telling me was something he had discovered intellectually. And I told him, I said, somewhere in this process, somewhere in all this intellectual understanding of body, soul, and spirit that you're gaining, let the spirit teach you because what he will teach you will not be academically learned. It will be intimately known. He was fascinated with the fact that he had never been introduced to body, soul, and spirit. I said, I tried months and months ago to have a conversation with you about this and you wouldn't hear me. And he said, yeah, I remember that conversation. He said, I need that conversation now. So we stood there for probably half an hour, maybe a little longer than that with me teaching it. But he had taken the element of what makes us different out. So there's absolutely no way. Think about that. There's no way for the church to behave differently than the world if the only thing that gives us the uniqueness is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Again, I can point to thing after thing, but when you look at how a church, typical church operates, if you took the name of the church off and just took the administrative office, just took all this done, could you tell any difference between that office and the office of any small corporation? No. What do they both do? They both form a budget. They set objectives. They have a mission statement. They set goals that they want to accomplish in a year. They provide money for those things that they want to get done that year. Things that are important to them. The whole budgeting process, I would just challenge you to find it in here. I can't find it. How does a corporation make decisions, even in a boardroom? What do they do? They discuss and then they they vote. 
I'm not against voting, but when church begins to be directed by voting so that we'll know what to do, then we follow a pattern for, I talk to Kendall about this pretty often, just weary of performance reviews. You know, they'll set the goals at the beginning of the year and then he has two or three reviews in the middle of the year to see if he's getting the goals accomplished. Where did that come from? Came from the corporate world. Like it's nonsense. But if you remove the Holy Spirit, that's what you're left with. That's what you do. We go to church and you, and you go to the country club. Well, that's not really much of a difference. But so the, the church has taken on in many, many ways the attitude of the world. A, a corporation will say, if, if we want to make this much money, we've got to work this hard. We've got to get this done so that this will be the end result. If you take the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit out, how does everything get accomplished? By the efforts of men and women, forming teams, organizing to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And it looks like the world. So let's just begin with verse 12, taking this apart for just a second. The angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he, which hath a sharp sword with two edges. So immediately, what does it bring to mind? Yeah, the scripture from, from Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, that says the word of God is sharper than any two edged sword. So I can quote that little bit of the scripture, but what I want to do tonight is I want us to go to Hebrews four and I'm going to read a good section of that chapter because what I want you to see is the environment in which that scripture is written. Yes, it's powerful by itself, but the context of that tells us a whole lot, not only about what he was writing to the Hebrews in that letter, but also what's happening in this church in Pergamos. So let's begin with Hebrews four, verse one. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, that any of you should seem to come short of it. So where does this begin? It begins with the promise that you and I are supposed to enter into rest. Now that immediately goes counter to the world because the conclusion of the world is you work hard, you gain. And we teach it, you know, if you want to win basketball, directly related to how hard you work. Very common teaching. You want your business to succeed, you work hard. So we have brought that, picked that up, brought that into the church. If you want the church to grow, work hard. If you want it to be successful, work hard. But what does it immediately say? Counter to the world. If you want to be successful as a church, what do you have to learn? You have to learn how to rest. That doesn't mean stop what you're doing. It means rest and use this arm, you know, all day long doing whatever I'm doing. And I would eventually get exhausted and have to stop. If this arm could just relax and there was something attached to it that would move it, I would neither get exhausted or weary. It might be bore you to death, but you're not doing anything because that which is, has a hold of you is performing everything. So how do we enter into that rest? It's not stopping. It's letting somebody come and do in us and through us what we can't do. That's our rest. And he says, the warning is, let us therefore fear that some won't enter into the rest. Verse two, for unto us was the gospel preached, that good news preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have, to, have believed do 
enter into rest, as he said. As I have sworn in my wrath, if thou shalt enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? I remember when Amanda was here, when Rhea and Amanda were here last. Part of that last message was everything has already been done. Again, kind of hard to process. Again, it doesn't mean that we get to stop and sit down. That's not what the message says. The message is that everything that is needed for the fullness to occur, all that has been done. We now live in the fullness of all that God has already done. We get to rest. It even says here, how can we get to rest? Because he says in such a strange way, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's saying everything that is going to be done is God saying, I'm going to have to do it. The success of it, the fullness of it, the glory of it doesn't rest in you. The glory of it rests in me. I will be the cause of my own effect. I will be the horsepower that drives this. I will be the accomplishment of every end. It will be me. When we get to Genesis 15, And we read this story here about God telling Abraham that I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless you unbelievably. You're going to have these kids that are numbered like the stars or numbered like the sand and through you, the the whole world is going to be blessed. But at the end of that conversation, he tells Abram to prepare a sacrifice. So it says he labors all day. He kills a bull. He kills the sheep. He kills the goats and he creates a bloody alley the most harsh type of covenant where there had to be blood to actually seal this covenant. Great sacrifice to seal this covenant. Well, I missed this for many years. I got part of it. I got the part where when it came time, because the way you seal the covenant was for both parties to pass through this sacrifice together, saying, I will, by the blood seen here, I will honor my part of this covenant. What happens at the end of the day? God allows Abraham to go to sleep and the Shekinah glory of God descends and passes through this sacrifice alone. What's the message? What was he trying to tell Abraham? That all these promises that I made you of these children that are going to be numbered like this, of the fact that through you all the world is going to be blessed. Every promise I have just made you no longer depends on you. I will be the fullness of everything expected so that this can be done no matter what you do. Conceptually, very difficult for us to understand. Did God still need Abraham? Yes. What did he need him to do? He needed him to be who God established him to be. He needed him to be obedient. He needed him to follow what God established so that by that act of obedience, God could actually deliver on the promises that he had just made. But he wanted to make sure that Abraham was taken out of the responsibility because what did he know? He already knew that Abraham had no ability to keep his side of the covenant. What does he know about us? The same thing. He knows we have no ability in my behavior, in my action, in my attitude to keep my side of a covenant. So he said, I will keep it for you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be so thorough that I'm going to give you my righteousness. And that's where I stopped for a long time. Just in amazement that God said, what I'm going to accomplish on your behalf will not depend on you. It's going to always depend on me. But in the fact that God needed Abraham, still needed him, he said, I still need you in this story. 
He said, but I want to do something else, especially to us. Everything I expect of you, I'm going to do. I'm going to put me in you so that everything I expect of you, I will do. That's the nature of the covenant. This new covenant that you and I are under, a covenant that says, when we put our faith in him, and I can step into this rest because of the reality that says, I I have a responsibility to be in this story, what I'm supposed to be, but everything will be accomplished by him, even if I fail. Every failure that I have does not disqualify me from the goodness of God. But he said, I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to ask things of you because I need you in this covenant. But what I'm going to do is because I know that you can't do it. I'm going to put myself in you so that everything I ask of you, I'll actually do. First Thessalonians 5, 24. Faithful is he who calleth you who will also do it. If he's going to call you, he's going to do it. Now, I don't know how to get better news than that. I don't know how to tell a good news story more than that. My faith allows him to move me in his favor even on the days that I fail. Because his love, his, his goodness, his grace isn't based on me. He knew that I couldn't do it. He said, but I'm going to go one step further. I don't want you to just go along for the ride. I need you in the story. I need your hands. I need your heart. I need your mouth to speak with. I need your feet to go with. Said, but I make you a promise. Everything I call you to do, because I'm going to live in you, I'll go do it. And again, I don't know how to find better news than that. And he says that when he says in verse two, for unto us was the gospel preached, that good news. Verse four, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And this place again, if thou shalt enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not because of unbelief. What keeps us from entering into that rest? Remembering that what allows us to have rest is the spirit that he's now placed in us so that it's not our effort. It's not our plans. It's not our ability to just rally and and gather the resources. What allows us to enter into that rest is because he has come to dwell in me. That's the rest. What would keep that from happening? The only thing that could keep that from happening, unbelief not trusting that he would actually do what he promised and said that he would do. Verse seven, again, he limits a certain day saying in David, today after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear this, his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, they would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own work. See, I don't know how to make this any more plain. If you're going to enter into rest, you have to stop your own work so that he can work in you to do what he planned and what he hoped to accomplish. He also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And then this, this strange verse, it's like it almost doesn't fit if you don't connect it to what he just said. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit, correctly dividing soul and spirit. So just think about this for just a second. What's the context that led into this verse? 
Where does the world live? In their body and in their soul. Controlled by what they think, controlled by what they feel, that's now demonstrated in their physical body. If we're going to enter into that rest, what do we have to know? We have to know how to enter into the reality of a spirit life. And we can't fear that spirit life because it's in that spirit life we find that rest. Because everything about our soul will say, work hard, get it done. And you'll get the reward at the end of the day. We will not. And and he said, the, the word of God, what comes out of the mouth of God is always going to be telling us, will be reassuring us, giving us that confidence in that faith that entering into that reality of a life in the spirit is where that rest actually is. Again, this is a great scripture by itself. But when you realize on the heels of what he's been saying about missing this rest that God has promised or entering into it, and then all of a sudden he gives this example of the correct dividing soul and spirit that, I don't know, there's probably some principle there that you could associate that with, but he's saying, don't enter into the rest, it's your soul. Enter into the rest, that's correctly dividing into the life in the spirit. And he goes on, and of the joints and the marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What does that discernment require? I can hear somebody speak and know what they're thinking. I can see them act and and express emotions and know what they're trying to express. But if I want to know the story behind the story, if I want to know why they're acting that way, if I want to know why they're speaking those words, who is going to be required in that story? Holy Spirit. Life in the Spirit. If I want to know beyond the surface and find ourselves in the ability to quit judging what we see on the surface, to allow the spirit to tell us the truth behind what's behind it so that we actually move in empathy, move in compassion instead of just the judgment that we get when we try to assess a situation at face value. He's saying it's not the thoughts, it's not the emotions, it's the discernment that there's no way to know unless you enter into that life in the spirit. Discernment is a gift of God. It requires the spirit to gain discernment. So When we come to this passage now, and in verse 12 of chapter 2, Revelation, it to me is at least clear that there is a difference, and we are supposed to know that difference between the church and the world. We ought to be acutely aware when somebody says something or does something, it ought to shout to us, wait a minute, that's the world speaking. And we ought to be very, very tuned to the reality of the difference. But there's only one way for that to work, because what happens in the church is again, it's what happens everywhere else. We begin to move based on good ideas. That sounds like that would work. We do that, that sounds like that might draw some people. We do that, that looks that we might get some people interested. We do that, we might get some people to stay. We do that, we might get some people to give. You know, we do these things and this will be the outcome. When that thinking hits, we ought to immediately recognize that's the world. But I tell you what, we have become so dull to the world in the church If we say something else, it's what sounds foreign. To say something else in the church, you know, Judy uh, shared, or I think she shared it last week, that uh, she was in another Sunday school class, and the point she was trying to make is we were not saved to serve. Again, that's a hard concept, that God did not save us to serve. And when we teach that, we're actually teaching something that the Bible works very hard to clear up. We were saved to be sons. We were saved to be children of God. Again, there's a tremendous difference. And the big one that I share is that a servant will look at what the master has and never believe for a second that the master would give it to him. I'll get the portion that I work for, but that's what I will get. A son, on the other hand, 
We'll look at what the father has and know by right that everything that the father has is his. We see it in the story of the prodigal. Here's this kid that comes back that's wasted all of his money. Again, not a single question that the father asks and says, you know, what'd you do with the money? Who were you with? What'd you do? Didn't even ask a single question, even though the son's trying to tell him. It's like, no, get the, get the robe, get the shoes, get the ring, kill the fatted calf. My son is home. So they throw this banquet here. The older son's coming home in the evening and he sees this going on in the house. He won't come in. So the father comes out to him. The older son's hurt and says, father, all these years I have, what's the word? Served you. And you wouldn't even give me as much as a goat to kill so that I could have it with my friends. And the father, stunned, says, you have always been with me. Everything I have is yours. So we have in that story a son, the prodigal, who comes and lives as a son. The one who had always been there is a son now living as a servant, hoping to get a goat at the end of the day that he can have with his friends. I want to tell you, the church, when we teach that we are designed to be servants, are hoping someday, maybe in a revival, maybe if we get everything right, we'll get the goat. Never believing that every Sunday, every day, every day of our lives, I have access to everything that the Father has because I am his son. Well, Judy is sharing some portion of this in a Sunday school class. It didn't go so well. They weren't prepared to hear it. Why? Because it didn't sound like what they had been typically hearing. It didn't matter if it was spiritually true or not. It didn't sound like what they had always heard because what they'd, what they'd heard was how to be a good servant we've gotten so far off. It's not the fact that we don't recognize the world when the world speaks. We don't recognize God when God speaks. Yeah. I think there's a sermon coming uh, out of a, a phrase that just stuck with me and give you a preview. Matter of fact, I might give you the whole thing. What happens at the end of the movie? Heaven's for real. What happens at the very end of that when Greg Kinnear is at the table, he's looking at his computer and he's reading about this story, this girl who had an experience, something like Colton's, and she began to draw Jesus. What happens when Colton comes around and looks at that computer? What does he say? That's him. What's the next phrase? That's him. That's who I saw. Every time we see God act, every time we see him, that should come off of our lips. That's him. We ought to recognize Jesus in the kindness we ought to see him in the miracles. We ought to see him in the healing. And that ought to come off of our lips. I just saw him. That's him. Seeing Jesus ought to become so familiar. Seeing the work of the Holy Spirit, hearing the truth of it ought to become so familiar that it takes a lot for the world to ever get us off. But we have, we kind of sunk so far into the world, let it so penetrate the church that we fight now when we hear something that is God, the Spirit released because that's what sounds foreign. Verse 13, he says, I know thy works. Here again, that was that statement by the one who was standing among the candlesticks in chapter one, Jesus doing this review of these seven candlesticks and now writing to them. And he's saying, when I was reviewing you, he says, I know. And I want to tell you, this is powerful. And I hope it resonates not here because I don't believe this is true of this place. But when we start thinking of the church and in, at large, the big church, what we're calling the church of the world today, the relevance of what he's fixing to say, and this is where one of them where I couldn't find, even find a commentary because most of them think that Jesus is really just praising them. And, and maybe he is, maybe I'm missing something. 
the context of this is so strange. Listen to this. Verse 13. I know thy works and I know where you dwell. Encouraging or not? Is that a good statement? It all depends. What did Jesus say about what he didn't have? What did he not have as he told the disciples? I don't have a place to lay my head. Why? Because he was a sojourner in this world. He was on the move. He had a purpose for being here, but he knew that this world was not ultimately where he was going to be. One of the critical elements of what's happened in the church is that we have forgotten that we are sojourners in this world and we have sat down and taken up a place of dwelling. How can you tell that? How many of you ever were hooked on the TV show MASH? Mobile, Army, Surgical, Hospital. How did that differ from a hospital anywhere else? What was the key word in that? Mobile. It should not upset a pastor at all to preach his church empty. If I had a goal, that's, and I know it's not possible, but, I, but to think that somehow I own you in, in any form or fashion as a member. Because there's a great danger of what happens when we sit down and take, uh, take up place in a dwelling. What do we do when we do that? We plant trees and we buy nice furniture and we get comfortable because I'm here to dwell. So that if, even as he begins this, he says, I know where you dwell. Well, listen to the rest of this. I mean, this is, there's such indictment in it, but it seems to be mixed with praise. I know thy works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. What did he just say? Here's this church. Here's the people. You call yourself this, but you have provided Satan a place to sit where you dwell. This is a strange statement. And then it goes into this, and thou holdest fast my name and has not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr. So what's he saying here? I mean, this, this was confusing and I, and I couldn't find anything that I was reading that clarified it for me. When I read this, it says, if, if Satan's going to have a seat in the place where you dwell in, as, as the church, because you're not on the move, because your hearts are not taking you out, it's not spreading the good news. It's about what's happening in the church, making sure it looks successful, making sure the building is right, making sure everything that we do is right. If you're going to provide a place for Satan to sit, then... What you're asking to happen is you keep saying you're functioning in faith. You keep holding fast to my name, but you're doing it and allowing Satan to sit there. See, I don't get that this is praise. I don't get that this is encouragement to this church. I don't think you can mix these things like that. Most commentaries say, well, he's talking about Pergamos. He's talking about the city. That's not what it says. This is not written to the city. This is written to this church. This is the condition of you. You've provided a place in church for him to sit. I know I have one perspective, but if you're going to invite the world in and get the Holy Spirit out, remember Sunday morning, Ephesians 4, verse 27, neither give place for the enemy. If you and I are at odds with one another, if we're we're divided at all, even a little bit, what that says in that division that we're tolerating is that we give place. and And it's not just a suggestion, it means, because Satan functioned from legal terms, it means that he has a right to that place that we just created in the division between us. If Parker and I got at odds with one another, that word place also means it has to be adjacent. So if Parker and I got at, at odds with one another, the place of conflict that Satan would get would not be in Brownfield. Yeah, it'd be in Rhonda's office. 
and you know it's true because I might be okay in my office, he might be okay in his office. What happens when we meet in that place? Bitterness, anger, whatever happens. He says, neither give place. Any division that we tolerate is going to be a place that we hand to Satan and say, this is yours by legal right. So what, what's happened when we, when we have separated ourselves from the Holy Spirit? What do we do? We created a place for Satan to dwell right here in the church. So what would happen if, you know, what happens immediately if Parker and I reconcile? What in that, and there's no division. What happens to Satan? It's gone. The unity, the reconciliation, the grace that is extended, the forgiveness is extended, immediately closes that gap and Satan has no place. What happens when we fully invite the Holy Spirit back? There is no place. There's no place for him to sit. There's no place for him to dwell. He says, even in the, this, and this was one of those phrases I just couldn't get. Even in the, and, and he acknowledges this guy, and we never hear this guy again, but he gets this point of recognition. And I believe it's the dynamic point when, when Jesus says, we're in, even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, I believe he's acknowledging the reality of what this man stood for and what it cost him. Hard to stand up and be a man of faith when the world has taken over. Who was slain where? Among you. Who had to be watching when this happened? For this to make sense, who had to be present at his death? The church. I think that's what it says. Who was slain among you where Satan dwells. Again, please understand the relevance and why that we have to look at all of these letters and say, what is that telling us about us? What's the relevant truth for you and I right now? It says how the church has become worldly. The word Pergamos means a high tower. It means a high place. But when you go back to the root word, it means a tower. How did the church become so worldly? What desire did the church take on? We wanted to be noticed. We wanted a place of power. We wanted authority. You can't do that by meeting in a hut. You've got to become valid. You've got to become prominent. You've got to become noticed. And so church, to what most people see it as, is a building with a well-manicured lawn. Don't stop, by the way, please. That's kind of the full extent. A high tower elevated above others. From the outside, the church looks successful. Looks like it has authority and position and glory. But inside is apathy, corruption, and defeat. For though we know that the duty of the church is to battle against powers and principalities, Satan, we now own buildings where much of what happens has nothing to do with God and much to do with the enemy. And even as it said, even where Satan's seat is. Mm. Verse 14, but I have few things against thee because thou hast, there are some that hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Balaam was a prototype of corrupt teaching. What he did, you'll find in corrupt teaching. Basically, he sold out for money. Ever see that going on in the church today? Sold out for money. Balak was the king of Moab and Balaam wanted to stay on his good side because what it meant to him. So he would begin to change instruction so that it wouldn't be in conflict with Balak and his Moabite beliefs so that there would seem to be this agreement between what the God of Moab 
and the God of Israel. If you adjust this enough, you can make this seem like it's the same thing. And that's what Balaam was teaching Balak to do as the king to blend these things and say, well, no, that's not wrong. So that he didn't seem to be out of step with Israel all the time. And it was very, very profitable for Balaam to do it. It says when Balaam counseled Balak, he taught him to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. The stumbling block was idolatry and immorality. And here in Pergamos, they absolutely had both. And because of the way the teaching had been changed, it seemed perfectly okay. Again, I have a viewpoint here that because of each one of us do, because of our own history and because of the things that the Lord has shown us and things that are important to us, there are just a lot of factors. But when you look at this, you recognize that so much doctrine has been changed trying to please the consumer that's sitting in front of them. I shared at a prayer meeting one, one Monday morning, I, I just made the comment, I said, you know, you probably can't build a big church telling the truth. And they, they said, that doesn't make sense. I'm, a lot of big churches, I know they're telling the truth. I'm not saying it can't be done. I know a few. And they said, well, give us an example. And I said, divorce is sin. And it's kind of like the room got real quiet. One guy <laughs> just sat down. It's like, oh no, I don't know what we're in here for, but <laughs> he just sat down. And it, you can see, it's like, see what happened? You know, you can't say that. Pastors in most big churches cannot let that come off their lips. Why? Because if, if statistics are right, 60% of everybody sitting in there has been divorced and everybody in there has been affected by it. You can't say that and build a big church. You have to adjust it some way. God understands. And what you do when you say something like that is you leave those people who are divorced stuck with the burden of that past life and not have a single way of knowing how to get rid of it so they can enter into something fully without that being encumbered by that past. If I can tell them, and that's what I told them, I said, if I call it sin, I can take you immediately to 1 John 1 and says, if, you, if you'll confess your sin, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you can enter into a relationship without being encumbered by the first one with absolutely no permission to do it again. Yeah. But when I said that, it was, you could see the room, Parker was in, it's like, you could see them just suck back. And I said, that's the reason right there. Well, every one of you had a reaction to that. And I said, some of you, I could tell didn't like it. It's hard to tell the truth. We want to adjust it. We want people to come back. I want to tell you, if somebody comes in here lost and I start preaching and trying to console them and make them feel comfortable so that they can come back, I want to tell you, I have lost my message. I need to tell the truth and let the convicting power of God do what it's supposed to do. Whether they come back or not, that's not my responsibility because what I say that's truth ought to offend them. If we say it in love, it will draw them. Can't change the truth though. Just cannot change the truth. Money and favor. That's what Balaam got. You cannot do it largely without an alliance with the world. It is not blatant, but anytime we compromise the design of God, and I'm a real stickler about this. I can talk about the design of marriage and what happens when we betray it and the fact that we, don't, we can't receive the blessings of God because we've abandoned God's design. I can, I can point that out and I can talk about it. That's not the one that's running on my radar. The one running on my radar is that we have removed the design of God for the church. A cup clean and now a cup full. This guy that I was talking to the other day, I asked him, I said, gave him that simple example. I said, if you need a drink and the only cup we have is dirty, what do we know to do with it? You wash it. I said, how did God do that? He said, with the blood of Jesus. That's exactly right. So I take that clean cup and I hand it to you and say, enjoy it. 
What's the chances it's going to quench your thirst? He said, it's not going to. I said, why? He didn't want to say it because it was designed to be filled. It was clean to be filled. If we change that design, if we say that the purpose of God is to clean the cup so that someday we can go to heaven, we have changed the design of God for the church. We have concluded that the design of God was to get people off the earth back into heaven someday. That's what God's all about. That's what we get people saved so that when we get them saved, someday when they die, they can go to heaven. That's what God's about. He's about seeing people saved. It's like it is not true. We cannot tell that that is truth. What do we tell our kids if you tell half the truth? What do we still call it? It's a lie. What do we have to say? Yes, Jesus came, shed his blood, do anything to minimize that reality. Why did he do it? so that a clean cup could now be filled with the Spirit of God. That's the design. That's what we teach. That's what guides us. That's what gives us direction. It's the cup now full and overflowing. You change that, you have created a compromise and you're doing exactly what Balaam did because we know that today you start talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, people are going to gradually start going out the door. You may get a new group in, but you're not going to be able to do that well without expecting controversy. And I live in amazement, just finishing nine years, that this church, largely because of what anybody would think of Dale, Dale laid a foundation here that just allowed me to build. And it it didn't look pretty, but that foundation allowed me to come in and not have to battle what he had to battle. So I've been able for nine years to preach and teach with a great deal of freedom and I get questions. People come in and say, would you explain that? But I don't battle over this truth. I don't have people challenging this design of God. Verse 15. So, so has that also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Just a few verses earlier in two verse six, Jesus praised the church in Ephesus because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans have their doctrine now held by the church in Pergamos. Their doctrine was one of proud authority and class separation. What actually happened, the word Nicolaos means to conquer people. The church was now set up to allow the appearance of God's favor on those who were wealthy and seemed godly. Man, you, you, when you get to the time of Jesus, it was very prominent. If you were wealthy, that meant you somehow had gained God's favor. If you were poor, you didn't have it. The Roman Empire by this time, in this segment of time, the Roman Empire had accepted Christianity as her religion. But since little was known in the Roman Empire about the things of God, the things of God were left to a very select few and they became very prominent. Everything that happened religiously was controlled by a few. So immediately Christianity took on this class system of people who have and people who don't have. Still going on today. Still very much going on today. It's very easy for the church today to compromise under the idea that we need all the help We need all the members we can get. You want to know something? It's not true. There's no more power in a large one than there is in a small one. But we think we need all the help we can get because if I have more people, then I can get more done. It's not so. And we confess by that attitude that God is not enough. Verse 16, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, the word repent. I... In my notes, I I put down what the Greek word is. And this is exactly what I said. I'm reading what the Greek word means. The word is, and I will not get this right, is metaneo. And it means to change one's mind. 
All the teaching that I've ever heard was, you know, that to repent meant to turn. Well, I guess when you change your mind, you're going to turn, but it's not your action. It's the fact that you've changed your mind that begins to change your action, to change your mind. And as Jay taught us a while back, it means not to just change your mind to a new way of thinking, but to actually change from the source of thought. So when I draw this, repentance is moving from the history, my personal history that has shaped my thoughts, shaped my values, shaped my perception. And to leave that history, the ancient history of my grandparents I've never met, the history of, of my parents and my grandparents that I did, my recent history, the things that have happened in the last five to 10 years, my current situation, all of those having the ability to affect whatever it is I'm considering myself, first of all, marriage, church, all those kind of things. And he's saying, repent. I want you to leave that history. And I want you to go across the page and I want you to find a whole new route from which your thoughts will come. Not just change what you're thinking in this route. I want you to find a new route. And if you do this right, you will have the mind of Christ. You will see whatever is down here that you're considering, you will see it only from the eyes, only from the heart, only from the perception that God has of that same thing. So that what's coming out of me is his thought about it instead of the reality of my history. That's repentance. He's saying, I need you. He's telling the church, I want you to repent. I want you to begin to look at church from the position that I hold and not what the world has done to you. Church will change by its very nature if we would simply repent and begin to see in the church only what God intended for us to see, to be only what God intended for us to be. Change your mind. He said, repent and I'll come quickly. You change your mind. You let me become the source of what you think. And he said, I'll be right. You won't even know the difference. The minute that you go to this source of thought and let me be the reason that you think what you think, I will be there so quickly that you'll think I was there all the time. Repent and I will come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of verse 12 is the word of God's mouth that will quickly separate us from the world. What did he say earlier? Sharper than any two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. He says, I'll come and fight and I'll fight them with the truth. Verse 17. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Let me just pause right there and say, there is not a chance in the world for us to be what we're designed to be in the heart of God if we're not willing to listen to the Spirit of God. He's telling them, if you have ears to hear, if you have any willingness to listen to what I'm saying, you're going to have to hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. For us to think that, that man might have an idea Man might have a concept on what church needs to be. There's a new comedy coming out. I read about it last night. The comedy is, I'm going to live what the Bible says. It's like, this is fixing to be such a mockery because I guarantee you they do not know. The heart or the message. This is simply a man who decides, makes a conscious decision that I'm going to live according to what the Bible says. To him that overcomes will I give to eat the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone and in a stone, a new name written, which no man knows saving he that receives it. So he says, I will give him hidden manna. This is God's perfect provision. The true bread from heaven. If you go back to John six, verse 41, what does Jesus say? I am that manna. So when he says, I will give you the manna, he says, I will, I'm going to give you who or what is the hidden manna? Christ, the hope of glory. You repent, I'll come quickly and I'm going to give you a gift that will change your world. I'm going to give you me. I want to let you eat from that hidden manna. I want to give you a white stone. This is an interesting, you know, there was just so many things about what this white stone could mean. 
It could be a ticket to a banquet. If you had the white stone, it means you had been invited. A sign of friendship. Evidence of having been counted, like in a vote. If you had it, then you, you had already been voted. You got counted. Or it was a sign of acquittal, that you were free and they would give you a white stone so that you could hold it out and say, I have been acquitted of, of a crime. Others believe, as I was reading, that there's an allusion to conquerors in public games, in the public contest, like in the Olympics. When a, a champion would be brought home to the city that they belonged to, they would be given a white stone. They would be brought in as royalty. And that white stone says that for the rest of this person's life, it's the responsibility of the community to provide for him. He never has to do anything again. And it would have his name scribed in it so that it would always be known. If he held it out, it meant that I don't have to pay for the groceries that I just bought, that I just have in my basket. I get to walk out with them because I've got this stone that says, got my name in it. With any of it, it's pretty fascinating. But for me, the thought of it being a champion returning home and God saying, because it had their name on it, he says, I will give you a new name. Anytime I read that God given a new name, it catches my attention. Because what's he going to do if he gives you a new name? What can you bet if he's going to give you a new name? He's going to tell you something about him and far less about you. He's going to take away the name that you could be proud of because you had won. And he's going to give you a new name that's going to describe who you are in him. It says, upon this stone, a new name written, which no one knows, but he that receives it. Overcoming assures us a new name. No longer broken, no longer a broken representation of an old identity. Once again, we see the reality of being overdoing. He gives them a new name. And it's no different than the name that Satan or the world gave me was poor. And when, when God finally got my attention, he said, that's not your name, by the way. Your name is wisdom. Lord, thank you that we can be together again tonight and just for the opportunity to, to take a look at this church, to look at the, all that was wrapped up in it so much. We, we know what you were addressing was the fact that the world had basically taken over. And you give us an opportunity to repent, to change our mind. And I pray, Lord, for the church at large, much bigger than this one, that we as a church would repent. The world is desperately needing someone to rise up and lead. I pray that it would be us. Lord, I just thank you how straightforward you are in the teaching that you give us because you're giving us an opportunity right now to stand with a new voice, with an identity that you give us, not the one that we've been proud of, not the one that the name that we've made, but based on our success, but the name that you've given us, a name that truly identifies who we are in relationship to you. We just thank you in Jesus name. Amen.